The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Omicron is super contagious. Any primary school teacher can tell you that. But it's not as lethal as previous rounds of this virus, so surely it's going to be a lot less damaging to the recovery. Only, you don't need to be in lockdown for a significant chunk of the economy to grind to a halt. You just need one in four workers to call in sick. Today's show... We have an on-the-ground report from Bloomberg senior correspondent Sean Donnan on the tidal wave of sick days that's hitting the supply of mozzarella sticks, airline pilots and yoga pants. We also take some time to consider President Emmanuel Macron, labelled the anti-Trump when he swept to power in France nearly five years ago, now looking a bit battle-weary as he fights for re-election. But things are going surprisingly well for the French economy. I have a conversation with the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, in a few minutes. Hang on for that. But first, here's Sean Donner. For much of this pandemic, it's fair to say that governments have had more than a little control over both the economic accelerator and, of course, the brakes. But with the Omicron variant running rampant in many major economies, we're seeing a new factor that governments seem to have a lot less control over come into play. Workers calling in sick. It's hard to overstate how fast the Omicron virus has hit the United States. It took the U.S. 10 months to register its first 10 million cases in 2020. The last 10 million cases, which in early January took the U.S. through the 60 million case mark, have come in less than a month. That speed has had consequences for businesses that have been very different than what they saw at other times in the pandemic. Here's James Beal, the CEO of Lido Pizza, a chain that has 110 locations in the Washington, D.C. area. Now it's almost kind of like we're resetting the clock again. Our our new normal is becoming another new normal, it seems like. (laughs) It's also not just the pizza chain's workers calling in sick. Beal says he's been dealing with another round of problems with his suppliers. Their staff problems have seen them reduce production shifts and delivery routes. To put that in real-world restaurant menu terms, that means he can't get as many mozzarella sticks as he would like, and it takes longer to get them. It's happening pre-Omicron, but it it definitely has gotten worse. Yeah, exactly. Tell me, tell me how, how you guys have been hit by particularly this latest wave here. I think this latest wave has just, I think, hit a lot of people with sort of uncertainty. Yeah. I think that's the biggest. Jim Robertson, who with a partner owns and operates five Lido franchises in the D.C. area, says so far the supply chain problems haven't hit the pizzas. 
although a few times recently he's had to make the two-hour there-and-back drive to a Virginia warehouse to pick up pizza boxes that haven't arrived in time from suppliers. Like if boxes one day, and then you're trying to find containers for the wings the next day, and then you're out of mozzarella sticks, so it's just... But guests, I think, understand it. And yeah. so as long as you explain things to people, I think you're okay. It's just the core items you get nervous. You don't want to run out of anything we do to make the pizza. Right. You know, it's one thing if you're out of mozzarella sticks and you won't hear me complaining, yeah, but yeah. if I'm at a, you know, pizza, you know, making, not being able to make the pizza sauce or being able to yeah. make dough, then you got a big problem. The problem for the U.S. economy is, of course, that it's not just a problem affecting the supply of deep-fried cheese. What started as a series of holiday flight cancellations as pilots and other staff fell ill or were forced into quarantine is rapidly becoming a business reality in factories, hospitals, grocery stores, and at those ports where the container bottlenecks were building up last year. Even if the hit is temporary, as most anticipate, the disruptions and closures are likely to slow the fragile rebound in some sectors and weigh on businesses' plans for the future. Nick Bunker, an economist at Jobsite, indeed grew up in Massachusetts, and there everyone remembers the great blizzard of 78, which dumped as much as four feet of snow on parts of New England inside 36 hours in February 1978. It paralyzed the region for weeks. It was a major economic hit in the short term, which is what he thinks Omicron will do, only it has quickly become a national event, which means, for now, thinking about the economic impact as the mother of all winter storms. Yeah, that is sort of this big, very, very large, sharp shock to the economy and the labor market specifically, um, but then the hope is, like a storm, it ends, and then there's a return to prior trends. The impact may also be partly hidden in the data, of course. The monthly job numbers in the U.S. and elsewhere are really best at estimating who has been fired or hired in any given month. They're not as good at telling the story of lost economic output due to people calling in sick. And yet there's clearly evidence of exactly that. Alaska Airlines has already canceled 10% of its flights in the month of January, citing an unprecedented number of staff calling in sick. Lululemon, the leisureware company, warned this week that it had been forced to reduce operating hours at its stores because of lack of staff, which means fewer yoga pants sold and lower profits. In California, outbreaks have hit luxury retailers on Rodeo Drive. Supermarkets are blaming Omicron absences for contributing to shortages of everything from chicken breasts to organic tofu. They've also hit the ports, which is daunting for anyone who was paying attention to the supply chain crisis we all lived and breathed last year. Jim McKenna is president of the Pacific Maritime Association. They negotiate labor agreements for 70 companies at 29 ports on the west coast of the United States. What we've seen over the last couple of weeks is the virus go from two to three a day to 20 a day. And now we're doing over 100 positive tests per day. And in fact, on Wednesday, we had 160 longshoremen test positive. There is good news, of course. When workers do have to stay home sick, they often aren't out for as long as they were with other variants, especially if they are vaccinated. 
Jim Robertson's Lido franchises haven't been hit hard yet. He had three employees at one store test positive, but he's been able to keep running. And while there weren't many people eating lunch in the dining room of one of his stores on a visit earlier this week, it wasn't entirely dead. Is it changing how you're thinking about the business or like your strategy at all or how you're approaching things? Or do you think you're going to go back to a world where, I mean, we've got people here eating lunch right now. Yeah, but... So we would normally have this restaurant would be full yeah. in old days at on a even on a Tuesday. I mean, we'd at least be three quarters yeah. getting ready to fill up because it's a small dining room. But um, yeah, you definitely have rethought on a mo- monthly basis what you're going to do to generate more carry out business, how to make it more efficient. You know, we now have curbside. We used to not have. We have, um, you know, during the height of the COVID, we would. You know, we had it all carry out. And at that point, we found ways to streamline things, open a door to make guests feel more comfortable. It's really just how we make our guests experience the best it can be through this. Back in the kitchen, there were mozzarella sticks going in the deep fryer next to a cauldron of marinara sauce. All of the staff were masked, but they were there and working, even if one of the printers that buzzed into action every so often was playing up. which is emblematic of a broader story of adaptation. Lido Pizza was facing staff shortages before Omicron. The company now employs 1,300 fewer people than it did before the pandemic. To adapt, Beal says, they have quietly cut the choices customers have for their pizzas. They've also dropped complicated pasta items from the menu to take some of the pressure off kitchen staff. So as a CEO of Planning Ahead, the one thing we try to do is embrace some technology to see where we can reduce uh, pain points as far as the labor. Uh-huh. So prior to COVID, we did 3% online ordering, like digital ordering. Now we're up to about 35% digital ordering. Wow. So that actually, you know, and that's in a you know 18-month time frame. Yeah. So that actually enables us to uh, you know do a greater volume with less people. In economic terms, that, of course, means they're increasing productivity. That's good for business. But that doesn't diminish the hit. The virus is the economy, and it keeps finding ways to surprise us, which is why millions of us are calling in sick. For Bloomberg News, I'm Sean Donnan. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. 
Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. France and the story of Emmanuel Macron. When he came out of nowhere to win the presidency in 2017, just a few months after President Trump entered the Oval Office, Macron was dubbed the great liberal hope, a supporter of multinationalism, rules, liberal values, free markets, everything you might say that President Trump was not. He was going to transform the French economy, lead the European Union to bigger and better things, oh and fix climate change. Now it's five years on, and he's facing the fight of his life to be re-elected in April against some right-wing opponents who are forcing him onto difficult political territory. But he does have one ace up his sleeve that eluded past French presidents, a strong economy. In a minute, we're very lucky to have a chat with the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire. But first, a few words with our France economy reporter, Will Horriban. Will, uh, thanks very much, and I should thank you for for helping us get that uh, interview with uh, Bruno Le Maire. Just get us up to speed for those who haven't been watching the twists and turns of the French presidential election. Where do we stand? Well, in some ways, the French presidential election hasn't really got going yet because COVID has very much got in the got in the way. But what we see happening is that Macron is he has still has quite a lead in the polls. Um, and the people who are close beh- closest behind him are those to the right of, of, of where he's set himself out. Now, the way the French elections work, it's important to have a reminder, is it's a two-round process. So the two candidates who get the most votes in the first round go to a second round runoff. So most polls are showing now that Macron will go to a runoff against one of one of three candidates from his right. And and those are, um, there's, there's Valérie Pécresse, who's a sort of centre-right candidate from Les Républicains Party. There is his perennial, the perennial nationalist candidate in French elections, Marine Le Pen. Who always um, has, Le Pen is always the surname of the perennial. <laughs> Le Pen, yes, yeah, certainly the surname, yeah. Um, but this would be, if, it, if she went to the runoff, that would be a repeat of 2017 for Macron as well. And then there is a new far-right candidate as well, who's a sort of former polemicist, journalist, commentator, um, Eric Zemmour. And you, you mentioned that it does introduce this kind of interesting dynamic, the fact that you have the two rounds. So, so where do the polls stand? Well, Macron does have quite a good lead. You know, he's around 25%, let's say, in the first round. And then the three other candidates are often around neck and neck, about seven or eight points behind him. So it seems quite clear that he will, at the moment, if you if the polls are correct, that he will get to the second round relatively easily. And then he will have to, uh, to in the second round, it, it's very different if he faces Valérie Pécresse from the centre-right, who perhaps has similar economic programme to him, or whether he faces one of the more controversial candidates in Marine Le Pen Eric Zemmour. Thinking about that second round, you know, it's all very well if you if you win the first round, but if all of the right candidates together add up to 
you know, considerably more at the moment, considerably more than 35%, you know, you have a bit more of a risk if you have a candidate that's going to unite all of those, all of those voters. So what's the, what's the prospects for that? Again, it depends who it is. Uh, I think, you know, the, some people who voted for Zemmour could vote for, say, Le Pen in the second round. Some people who voted for Le Pen in the second round, in the first round, could vote for Valérie Pécresse in the second, or even the other way around. It's very hard to predict that at the moment. And another big important factor in this is um, absenteeism. Like, will will people not actually just not bother voting in the second round? Um, and that makes it very hard to predict as well. We've said at the start that the economy is quite strong. Um, and we gather you've written that uh, his advisors are saying, you know, don't necessarily, you know, don't spend all this time talking about immigrants and, and other difficult issues, you know, go to your strong suit, which is the economy. Um, is that uh, put at risk by, by Omicron? Or does he, does, is that a really strong card for him? It could be a strong card, depending on the timing. Right now, the French economy has recovered very well from the pandemic um, and sort of noticeably better than some of its European peers. And so that is definitely an asset for him. If that continues in the next couple of months, um, there's some very strong employment numbers that, that I think not even not even his team expected to see at the end of by the end of this year. And also, as we talk about in the story that we've written, the so he can point to some of the early reforms that you you mentioned in in your introduction as being part of the reason why some of these some of these positive economic results are coming through now. Um, so depending how he plays it, and if if the pandemic comes off the boil to a certain extent in the next few weeks, then it could be the the card that could be very useful for him going into this election. Well, thanks to you and your excellent contacts at the French Finance Ministry. We can hear a lot more about that now uh, in my conversation I had with the Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire. But thanks very much, Will. Thank you, Stephanie. We're delighted to have the French Finance Minister back with us. Welcome back to Stephanomics, Monsieur Le Ministre. Thank you. We obviously, and many people listening to this podcast are in America and in other places. And many of the stories we see coming out of France in the run-up to this presidential election have been about immigration, security, and of course, the pandemic. But President Macron uh, came to office five years ago on a platform of economic change. We were going to see a wave of supply-side reforms that would end uh, decades of relative economic decline for France. So do you think that Macronomics has succeeded? What's happened to that agenda? I think that uh, President Macron has been uh, successful uh, in restoring the French economy and in making the French economy more competitive. And the promise that he made in 2017 was to introduce a total overhaul of uh, the French taxation system, of the French competitiveness, for the sake of having more jobs and more growth. And here we are. We have more growth with a level of 6.25% of growth for 2021. And we have restored the pre-crisis activity level no later than November of last year. And as far as employment is concerned, we have the highest employment rate in 50 years, 
67.5% for the 15 to 64 years old. So I really want to insist on the fact that the economic policy that has been introduced by President Macron is a success, a success for France and a success for the French people. You're right that employment is stronger than it has been in a while, but unemployment is still much higher than in Germany. And if you look at the forecasts of our economists, of other economists, they don't seem to expect higher long-term growth rates in France uh, as a result of any of these policies. So, so in that sense, macroeconomics has, does not seem to have had an impact. No, I, I share your point of view on the necessity to uh, reinforce those results. But I would like to uh, underline that we have a very sound and solid basis to um, reinforce the French uh, economy and to make better over the next years. The level of corporate tax was 33.3% in 2017, and we reduced that level to 25% for all companies in 2022. We also have very positive results on the creation of private companies and on the scale-up of uh, our startups. So I think that there is a need to continue reducing the level of taxation on private companies. I think that we have to reduce the level of social charges on the highest wages if we want to be more competitive for the technological industries. And we also have to think about the uh, best way of improving the skills of the French workers. But my point is, we are on the right track. We did the necessary reforms. There is a need to do more. There is a need to do better. But we are on the right track by improving the French offer, which was, to me, the key point in the French economy. You have talked about the energy price rise that the all of Europe is seeing as an absolute emergency. Uh, clearly, it's a massive issue in the UK and other places. Households are bracing themselves for maybe 50% increases in their energy bills in April in the UK. France has made this, ex what's from the outside, an extraordinary commitment to cap the impact on households this year to only a 4% rise. You're the finance minister. Can you really afford that to write that blank cheque to French households? And who's, who's going to pay for it in the end? It's an absolute necessity. And I think that we'll have to share the cost, of course, uh, between the French state, and we are already paying 8 billion euros to reduce the level of uh, the energy prices, the electricity prices for both the households and the private companies. And we will need to do more because increase on energy prices, the increase on electricity prices might reach 35 to 40% for uh, the year 2022. So there is an absolute necessity to intervene if we do not want to have very strong difficulties for the households and a threat on the private companies, especially on the uh, industrial companies. So we have decided, first of all, to reduce the level of taxation on electricity prices. This is the first response that we have given with uh, the Prime Minister to the increase on electricity prices. But it won't be enough. So we are working very closely with EDF, Electricité de France, to try to build a second response, which will complement the first one. 
and which will allow us to stick to the promise given by President Macron to cap the electricity prices to 4% in 2022. I hope that we will find uh, the response and that we will be able to propose a response no later than the end of this week. And do you see that as an economic necessity or a political necessity? Because I look around Europe and there's the same kind of energy price rises coming down the track for many governments and no government, uh, no other major government is offering this kind of support, but they're not just about to face a presidential election. It is, first of all, an economic necessity because it is less costly to protect the industrial plants from this uh, huge increase of the electricity prices rather than uh, providing uh, help to uh, the salaries, providing help to uh, those companies because uh, they are threatened by a possible shutdown. I really think that this is uh, the right uh, response, the right economic uh, response to uh, this uh, electricity crisis. I also want to insist on the necessity to have a long-term approach. It won't be enough to have a protection given by both the French state and by EDF. We also need to have a long-term response based on changes in the uh, electricity market, the European electricity market, because I think that there is a need for changes in the European electricity market. It will be also at the core of the French EU presidency. What is your advice to to other governments who are all dealing with the same issue and they can also see what the potential cost could be of uh, of footing the bill for these energy price rises? I think that may be why they are willing to have households really shoulder the, the, the burden over the next year. What do you think of the risks of that if you let households face this kind of maybe 30, 40, even 50 percent increase in their energy bills? First of all, I, I really think that uh, there is no possibility for our people to uh, have such an increase in their uh, electricity bills, 35 to 40% when the average uh, electricity bill in France is around uh, 900 euros. That's something that um, the, uh, uh, all the people cannot afford. And that's why there is a need for a very strong response. Then I really think that the single fair and efficient response over the long term is based on one single word, independence. We need to be more independent on the production of energy. We need to reduce the level of dependency on uh, gas production by Russia and by other foreign states, which means that we have to uh, build both new nuclear plants, that's the response that we wanted to give with President Macron to uh, the risk of this uh, increasing uh, energy prices. And we also have to uh, rely on renewable energies, but the real response is to have more independence on the energy production everywhere in Europe. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? 
That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Do you think, as we look at the fallout, the longer term fallout from the pandemic, the one that is most obvious clearly is, is inflation and not just at energy prices, but inflation that's come from supply chain issues and potentially also the labour market being quite tight in in many places, people changing their attitude to work in some countries. Do you think inflation could end up as a greater political risk to governments than the pandemic itself? We have to be vigilant. Uh, We have to uh, understand what is behind this increase on uh, prices. And I think that what is behind and what explains half of the increase of prices is the energy prices, and that's why the long-term response must be based on more independence on energy production. And then we need to be very careful, very vigilant on inflation. Our assessment remains that uh, this uh, level of uh, inflation remains a temporary inflation, but let's be very clear. When I'm speaking about temporary inflation, I'm not speaking about days. I'm not speaking about weeks, I'm speaking about months. And I think that we will have to live with a pretty high level of inflation by the end of 2022 because of the lack of energy, because of the difficulties in the supply chains, because of the situation in China which has decided to close its borders. For all these reasons, I think that we will have to live with a pretty high level of inflation by the end of 2022. So this is a temporary inflation, but we have to uh, understand that the word temporary means some month and not some weeks. We have different definitions of transient in the US and people are certainly changing their view of that. If we step back a little bit, You will remember, you will certainly know, five years ago, people around the world saw President Macron as Europe's great liberal hope. He seemed to be this new, very confident blend of the best liberal instincts from the right and the left of French politics, European politics. But now we look at the presidential campaign. He's he's polling only just ahead of uh, two extreme right candidates, one of which whom we didn't even know about a few months ago, is the conclusion the rest of the world should draw that it, that middle road that President Macron was walking is impassable in today's climate? just can't be done. No, I think on the contrary that um, he um, 
is the uh, evidence that there is a path for structural reforms, for the improvement of um, the competitiveness of uh, an economy, and for um, the possibility of giving to every citizen the chance of being uh, successful. Of course, we are facing a very strong opposition from the extremist parties, but that's the case everywhere in the Western world. It has been the case in the United States, it has been the case in Italy, it has been the case uh, in the UK. So it is the case in every uh, Western country. But the truth is that uh, there is a possibility for uh, this way to be successful. And I'm deeply convinced that uh, at the next presidential election in France, Emmanuel Macron will be successful because he uh, has uh, given the evidence that if we are taking the right economic decisions, we can get some very strong results. Once again, we are on the right path. We should stick to that path because it gives results to the French population. But just to push back a little bit, those two extreme right candidates are polling between them significantly more than President Macron. And when one looks at the, the stories and the language uh, from the presidential uh, campaign, it feels like his, his, resp- his political response in order to win the election has been to move away from his liberal instincts and to play up perhaps to more of the, the, the illiberal or the uh, anti-immigration side of, of French politics. So um, again, from the outside, that seems like quite a dispiriting development that the only way he can succeed is actually by moving away from the liberal vision that he had outlined. It depends on uh, what you mean by a liberal vision. If a liberal vision means uh, to believe in the possibility for every citizen to build its own success, which is, uh, I think, at the core of the political liberalism. I could share that point of view. If you mean by uh, a liberal approach the fact that uh, there is no need for the state to intervene in the economy, I would not share this point of view. Because the crisis just proved one single thing. We need the intervention of the French state or of the European states to uh, face the consequences of the crisis. And if we have been successful in 2020 and in 2021 to face the crisis, to protect the companies and to protect the workers, and also to have a very quick and sound economic uh, rebound, that's because the states and uh, the public powers decided to intervene and to give very strong responses to the crisis. It was not the case in 2008 and in 2010 during the financial crisis. And we uh, were not successful during the last financial crisis. We have drawn the lessons of this financial crisis by asking the French state and by asking the European states to intervene on the markets to protect the companies and to protect the salaries. And it proved to be more efficient. It does not mean that uh, I think that uh, the state would have to intervene uh, in every situation and uh, under every circumstances. It just means that in a period of economic crisis, we need the intervention of state and we need the support of the states. 
we did speak several years ago, uh, you have managed to be finance minister through the whole of President Macron's presidency, which is not uh, is quite a rare thing in France. I, I gather, do you want to stay in your job if you get the chance or is there a better job in government that you would like? There is no better job uh, than being finance minister. And uh, I will uh, just uh, finish by insisting on the necessity of having more stability in French politics. Uh, you know, when we are talking uh, about economy, about finance, about coming back to sound public finances, about the necessity of having more industry in France, it takes time. And uh, the lesson that I draw from these five years as a French finance minister is that if you want to build something solid for the French nation and for the French uh, people, you need time. Time is of the essence. If you want to be successful, you need more stability in the French politics. Bruno Le Maire, thank you very much. Thank you so much. That's it for Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. But for more news from Bloomberg Economics, do follow at Economics on Twitter. And maybe check out my cover story for this week's Business Week on the year ahead for the global economy. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Sean Donnan, Will Horobin, and the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.